Tonight, we are going to be hearing from Tony Jordan, who is the author of this fantastic book, The Fragments, which I just finished today, so I can legitimately say that it's fantastic, because I have actually read it. Uh, When I first started reading it, I thought, this is a book about people who really like books, and it's about books, so the people who are going to read it are people who like books. It's kind of like shooting fish in a barrel, really, isn't it? (laughs) But it's actually a really compelling mystery. It's about uh, the power of uh, of stories, and it's about uh, how people become obsessed about things and about people and what that kind of leads to. And uh, I want to tell you more about it, but I don't want to give away any spoilers. But I will introduce to you Tony Jordan. Thanks for coming, everyone. Here's Tony Jordan. (laughs) Thanks, everybody. Thank you so much. Do you want to give a quick summary about what the book's about? Okay. Well, this is, um, it's kind of what they call a literary mystery, um, which is, it has a format which is modern day person finds secret in old book, then um, then unravels the secret of the writing of the old book. So my, my modern-ish day person is, it's in the 1980s. Her name is Caddy Walker and she's a bookseller. And she's a really big fan of a, a, a dead um, 1930s novelist. And there's a touring exhibition of burnt scraps of this dead novelist's missing second novel that was never published and never found. And um, she meets, Caddy meets a woman in the queue at the, this exhibition um, who seems to know more about this missing manuscript than she should. And it leads Caddy to think that maybe someone else has read the book, might remember it, and she embarks on a hunt to find, um, the deta- find this woman and, and find out if anyone could possibly remember anything about this book. It's it's a great mystery. But I'm, where did the seed for this come from? I, I know this is an, an inane question sometimes, but where did the idea for this book come from? No, this is a, the most important question because this is the hardest thing for me. I feel like this is my fifth novel now, and I feel like there's a lot of things I'm getting better at. Like, I think I'm better at sentences. <laughs> I really am. I'm better at sentences. It's a very important I'm skill for authors. <laughs> Um, I'm much better, better at things like that. Like when I go back and have a look at my first novel, which was called Edition, I published that in 2008, and I just look at it, just open the page and look at it, all I can see are all these commas, like commas everywhere. It's like like I'd bought them at an end of financial year special and I had to use them all up before they went off or something. And it's just commas everywhere. And so now I feel like I'm getting better at that. But there are some things that I feel I will never get better at, and one of them is the ideas. So in my head, the the writing of a novel kind of process is divided into, I don't know if this is the same for you, the art half, like the actual spark of a, a, some kind of original creativity half and the craft half, which is what you do with that idea to bring it out. And I feel like I'm getting better at the craft half. But the art part, I think I will never understand as long as I live. It's something that comes from your unconscious and I, I wish I was better at it. I know that there was two things that were important to me when I came up with this idea, and the one was, one was the printing of um, the second um, novel of Harper Lee, Go Tell a Watchman. Do you remember that? Like it was an enormous big deal, and I don't know anything about, like I've got no insider knowledge or anything, but I thought there was something quite a bit hanky about it. Like she'd lived all these years without publishing this book, 
the manuscript has been in her safe. Everybody, the whole world has been clamouring for another Seth Harbally novel since, you know, the first one came out. Um, and um, suddenly she, she's old, she's maybe a little bit, a bit of dementia. Suddenly this novel is published with a lot of fuss, making a lot of money for somebody, and she's dead like a couple of months later. To me, that there was something very suspicious in that, but it made me think a lot about the desire that people have for these second books and how even after all these decades, that was still such a major publishing event. So that's the first thing that was kind of stirring around in my brain. And the second thing was about the unmasking of Elena Ferrante. Do you guys remember? So Elena Ferrante is this very huge, world-famous Italian novelist who wrote what we call the Neapolitan series of books. And she had made a very deliberate decision to publish under a pseudonym. And she had very complicated reasoning, philosophical stuff that half the people didn't understand. But it was about um, the division between the writer and the book and feeling like that she had written something that sounded autobiographical and, and there was a tendency to for readers to um, make that connection. So she intended to sever that connection and write under a pseudonym so that it was forced to be considered as fiction. And this had, she had successfully done this for quite a few years. Then this investigative journalist um, went through the financial records of her publishing house and found money going, like royalty checks going somewhere where they should not be and, and did a front page investigation and unmasked her, who, who she really is, was. And what was interesting for me was, before this unmasking, I was so dead keen to find out who she was. So I know her publisher here in Australia, and at this one party, I kind of forced him into a corner and said, come on, you can tell me, like I was lusting to know. And then as soon as it was released, then I did not want to know. Like, in fact, I had the shits with this guy. How dare you kind of do feels this? It feels a little bit dirty, doesn't it? It does yeah. feel. So it just the, the way that my intentions change from I can't wait to find out the answer to the secret, then as soon as the secret is revealed, I'm like, well, I, I didn't really want to know that at all. That's so the, That's the beauty of secrets, isn't it? It <laughs> is. And that kind of got me thinking about the identity of the author, why that mattered, why people want to find out more about their lives, how I could reveal more about the life of somebody who meant something to somebody else and that whole imaginative space. And I think those two things, the, the second Harperley and, and that Ferrante moment, kind of merged together. Th there's a whole thing too about, uh, about lost novels, lost films, lost albums, all these things that could have been when artists die too young, yeah. all that kind of stuff as well. It, it, did that sort of fall into it? Is there a thing of... Um, are there authors where you kind of wonder what could have been or they have unfinished novels that you sort of thought this was a way to kind of tap into that? I mean, it's a perennial thing. There, there's um, th Sylvia Plath had a manuscript that she had written to her mother about that was nearly finished, a novel, and when they went through her papers, um, I don't know whether Ted burnt it or what the story was, but it was never found. Like, th there's a number of these kind of cases of missing things. But this pit fits into something that I see as a larger kind of picture of this book, which is about this nostalgia for things that are missing or gone or past that we will never have. And um, I don't know if it's kind of my, you know, turning 50 novel, maybe it's just that, but there, there's something a lot more nostalgic about this point of view than about anything I've done before. I was thinking about years that have gone, buildings that have gone, um, people that have gone, and, and that, that way that, that the shadows that, that people leave in your life.
It's interesting because there's uh, th- some of the, the two main characters in it, Caddy and Rachel, both have people who sort of disappear from their lives and almost as father figures. Um, and in Caddy's case, she's sort of wondering about a relationship that with a particular character in the book who is just a horrible person. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, she's kind of wondering about what c- could have been with that as well. So that's that's part of the thematic yeah, thing as well. Yeah, it's a, it, it, it seems to me that this story was about things that are gone and can never be recovered. And of course that has to happen. That's a part of life. Otherwise nothing new will ever happen. You know. uh, but I suppose I've never really allowed myself to explore that that looking backward kind of view and, and thinking about what might have happened. You mentioned at the start about how uh, when you look at your older, your, your previous books, especially looking at your first book, Addition, that, um, you know, I mean, authors change and hopefully get better as they go along. Yeah. But what has changed really for you since Addition came out and since this book came out for you as a, as a writer? Um, I, I think ideas are actually more difficult now to finish. I have this theory that, as I said, ideas are the hardest part for me. And the earlier ideas were almost like the low-hanging fruit. You know what? You, you must know what this is like, right? No idea what you're talking <laughs> about. <laughs> you get ideas. The ideas that come early are the ones that have been stirring around in your brain for a long time. And you have to reach um, further for more things. So the five that I've written, and I've got two manuscripts that I've written that are rubbish, that I can't published and I wouldn't want to get published because they're terrible. So that's seven. And I married my husband. That's eight. I feel <laughs> like I've had eight ideas in my entire life. <laughs> um, so I think this <laughs> this part will always be the difficult part for me. But um, I feel like the things about structure and plot, I'm, I, I'm really interested in. And the world of novels, like I don't do anything else now but read fiction. So I sold my car. So I get trains and trams everywhere for more reading time and I don't people say to me you know Game of Thrones new season and I go that is what again I just have no I just read I read two novels a week probably and I just have no interest in doing anything else sounds like a tough life (laughs) Uh, in terms of, of structure and things what I really like about this book is it dips in and out of two very different time periods uh and two very well, kind of similar, but still very different characters. When you were writing it, did you know you were going to be having these two different time streams and go back and forth, or did you write one and then the other, or how did that work? Um, originally, I had written the... This is where the, the power of a good editor comes in. So I'd written it where uh, Rachel only appears in the second half of the story. So there's like one, um, ha- one character at the start and one at the end. Well, uh, no, it was interspersed, but only for the second half. So we only meet Rachel when she moves to New York and we didn't have her earlier life. And my publisher, who is also very good with structure, said this is unbalanced. We need to see her from younger so we get to know her a bit better. So I, I changed the structure of that. But structure is something you sh- it, that underpins you know, a lot of good stories. And my third book now, Nine Days, um, is a, uh, um, it's a historical family drama with all these different characters. And I'd, it, uh, this came out in 2012, and I'd semi-forgotten about it, but now it's on the VCE list for high schools for this year and next year and the year after. So I've been going around to schools, and they ask, kids ask the most insightful questions about it, like, why does this character do this? Why is this in this spot? Like, very in-depth things 
and it's really forced me to analyse how I felt about that structure when I was writing it. So um, I feel like I'm getting better with structure. I feel like I'm getting better with characters. They're more subtle now. Um, but, yeah, ideas I, will <laughs> I think I'll ever get better at. I'm feeling pressure to ask better questions than a t uh, VCE student now. <laughs> but uh, just as a show of hands, who, who's read the book so far? One, two, a couple of hands. Just so you know. Hey, <laughs> can I just say my husband did not put his hand up there? <laughs> could he, could he thank you. Just making sure you weren't just flipping the pages and there was something else in there. I thought he was just an idea. I didn't realise he was an actual <laughs> physical person. Um, there, I there is only like five or six copies here for sale tonight, but there are more coming. So if you put your name down at the desk, uh, then you will, they will, your novel will be forthcoming. So let's. Um, so. Not many people here have read it, so I don't want to give away too much. Um, but the, the the two different uh, parts of the story we're talking about. So one part is set in uh, uh, in America, uh, yeah. partly in Allentown, Pennsylvania, That's I think, right. and then in New York yeah. in like 1930s. Yeah. And the other part is set in Brisbane in 1986, yeah. I think. Yeah. So why did you pick those places and those times? Well, um, Brisbane for me in that period, I lived there then in, in Brisbane and it, it fitted in with that nostalgic kind of look at things because people in Brisbane especially always have this idea that 1988 which was World Expo up there was the moment it became a grown up kind of city and so I wanted to send it set it slightly before then as part of this things that are lost kind of motif um, and America in the 30s I thought look just between us I've never been to America <laughs> But um, it seems a very glamorous kind of time. It's it's sky new skyscrapers and everything's shiny. And again, just before World War II, when, when people did not really know the, the terrible things that were ahead of them, um, just again seemed a very poignant time of things that are, that are lost, that kind of idealism between them. And that's another big part of the book too, is that there's, and we can see that, that living in this time, that what is heading what is about to happen in you know 1939 a year ahead of where a lot of this takes place that yeah. the, the there's a war coming the rise of nazism and actually plays a, a, a part in the novel yeah. how much research did you have to do to get your head around that kind of stuff and also new york in the night in the 1930s well scenically it, i found it really interesting because we have the rise of nazis right now like i who could have predicted it even five or six years ago that now we were going to that we were going to be seeing the rise of Nazis again? No one would have. Um, so that was fascinating to me. I've got kind of um, you're going to really frown at me now, Matt. Our friendship is going to be over. I'm not frowning at you <laughs> yet, but go on. <laughs> but I'm not really super mad on the research. I'm not really a researchy person. My kind of point of view is as little as I can possibly get away with is what <laughs> I do, and it's. I've actually got a friend who's doing her PhD on research in fiction and she's using me as a case study for <laughs> pathetic <laughs> research in fiction. Here's <laughs> what not to do. Here's what not to do. Um, because if, if you do, look, this is how I see it. If I, you do make a mistake, people will tell you. Like people still write to me about a mistake I made in edition which came out in 2008. I still get emails from people about um, two errors I made in edition. Once a shopping error where I had this woman buy lettuce like a bag of lettuce and then say she had no salad later on that upsets people and also that I can't <laughs> I can't add up because there's one thing where I've got 
all these things added up and I've said it's 23 or something and it's not, it's like 22. And people still email me. This is 11 years later and yes, they are mostly Germans, but they still do email me. And, and I always write back and I say, thank you so much because I'm really not, you know. No one's pointed this out before. <laughs> no, no, it's really nice. I think it's really lovely that people read it in that depth. Um, but no one has pointed out an error in this book yet. Although the very first interview I did for this book was a guy from for the big issue. His name was Doug. He was really lovely. It was a phone issue. You know, big issue, that um, street people magazine. And he, he'd arranged it all by email that he was going to call me at this time and do the interview. Right. So I'm ready and I'm... I answer, this is the very first interview, and I answer the phone, and he's got this American accent, Midwest American accent, and I'm like, oh, I might be in trouble here because I've made it all up, right? And um, and I said, oh, where are you from, Doug? And he goes, oh, Pennsylvania. And I'm <laughs> like, oh, no. So anyway, he didn't say anything. But um, what was it? What were you? Oh, yeah, I was talking about the research. <laughs> so um, what, I ch what I do is I just write it and make stuff up, and everything that I make up, I make in I highlight in yellow, then at the end, I make a big list of all the yellow things and I go through and go and just find them out, like tick them off. And I just concentrate on not making mistakes because I think if you make mistakes, people do. Like those Germans go, that doesn't add up to 23. This woman is just talking nonsense. You know? So I don't want to, yeah, I don't want to make like mistakes because I think that really disrupts people's reading experience and then they don't trust me and then they think it's, you know. But um, provided I'm not making mistakes, that's just what matters. And no one has yet emailed me about this book, which I thought they would have if I'd made a mistake. So we're all good. We're all good. So far. <laughs> <laughs> so far. <laughs> what, no, it's good. I mean, that's an interesting thing because I think, uh, and it's obligatory that uh, whenever Jock Sarong is not here, we have to mention him and yeah. these things. Jock actually organised this. Jock. Yeah, so I'm Jock Sarong's understudy. <laughs> when, he's, when he's away, I have to fill in for him. But uh, he had talked about with his last book preservation day you get, you get so involved in the in the research that you kind of have to this stop is the problem at some this point, is yeah. this is why i don't do and it you found an answer to this yeah, problem yeah, yeah just because don't research yeah, that i just do bare minimum yeah. um and um i, I this is really I, i'm very committed to this point of view now and and people just you know are not very impressed but it's i really think it works i think this is great <laughs> Can I make you? Can I make you feel better? I, I had uh, in my book. Uh, I had a thing about a person going to a beach in Laos, and I didn't realize that Laos was a landlocked country. Oh! And people pointed that out to me. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to hear about that. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you you mentioned in the in the notes at the start of the book that you had to you asked people about Brisbane in the 80s, but you lived there. So what I were you what were you, what were you asking them about? Well, I, I just wanted to um, I suppose remind myself I have had a very small kind of life in Brisbane but growing up my family were not book people um, they were uh, punting people um, great we had we my father was a greyhound trainer and mother mum had a TAB so we had dogs under the house and a big day was going to like the Capella races and I was the odd kid in the family and they were all everyone was adorable to me um, they were all, all very it's just like the slightly weird eccentric kid who you know, we could be going to the Gabba to watch the... And you want to stay home and read books, you know? And it was all a bit strange. And mum used to drive me to Karina Library, which is the local kind of public library, and wait in the car listening to the trots on the radio while I went in and got my books. And um, they were they were great about it. it. It's just that 
I was just like the black sheep of the family. <laughs> and even like, but mum's gone now, but before um, before she died, she would say to me, so what are you doing now? And I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm writing a book. And she's she's like, you're writing another one, love. Like, <laughs> like one is kind of weird enough. So <laughs> I had a very small life in a, in a Brisbane suburb where we didn't, we had a very small sort of social circle. And um, I just wanted to make sure that the rest of, you know, everything uh, was at... Yeah, the rest of Brisbane yes, checked out. Yeah, that's yeah. right. That's right. I feel like this is good. Uh, having, having not read your previous novels, I feel like that growing up in a, in a punting family is good fodder for another well, novel. Well, it comes in handy in surprising times. So once I went to this literary dinner, one of the best things about being a writer is you get to meet, like, really important and famous people. So I went to this dinner and I was sitting next to, like, Gerald Manane, right? And... Luckily, I could talk about punting because he doesn't talk about anything else but punting. So it, you w would be surprised that how often this comes in handy. <laughs> I'm, actu I'm actually not surprised, really. <laughs> um, the, the fictional author in this, Inga Carlson, is a, a really interesting character. Uh, were you thinking of any particular... Well, f okay, firstly, was there a temptation to make use a real author and, a, and a, uh, a fictitious missing novel was that was that there at the start of writing it you maybe use a real author no I was always going to use a made-up person because I wanted to have that mythical like um, that you could build the myth yeah, around build them, yeah. someone to build a myth around so I of course I read a couple of Harper Lee biographies but she was a bit later she was in the 50s but just to give me the vibe and I also read for my sins about three biographies of that woman, that really nutty woman, Ayn Rand, is that her name? Oh Ayn? Yeah, yeah. Oh Atlas, my Atlas Shrugged and all that. She that was so nuts, right? <laughs> but very glamorous in that New York 30s way, living in a penthouse with her movie star husband um, and, you know, having affairs with the 22-year-old 20 president of her fan club when she was like 56 and just rocking it like in quite a, like, bizarre way but very that's where I got a lot of the publishing details from because there's a lot of biographies written about this her. sounds suspiciously like research <laughs> well I just kind of nailed into the bits I do have the books but I don't kind of lose it's very targeted the stuff that I do um, and I also read I was interested in female creatives around that time so I also read some biographies of that Nazi filmmaker oh, what's her uh, name yeah that's her can you say that? Yeah, Lenny Rice and Strauss. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, guys. Um, thank you. Uh, <laughs> and she was also a very interesting kind of character, very compelling, magnetic, extremely clear artistic vision. Again, batty, but, um, you know, a very interesting And so you've got this fictitious author and she writes this all-conquering book. Yeah. Uh, how much of uh, it's called all, ha all has an end is the name of the fictitious book in it. How much of all has an end is in your head? <laughs> Do you know what it is about this book that is so compelling to people and creates this myth around her? So right, this is this is quite hilarious. This bit because um, again, this comes back to my editor who is very knows him very well and is very smart. And um, so I'd written like a couple, quite a couple of pages of this all-conquering, world-shattering, you know, to kill a mockingbird kind of book, and it was going to be in there. And sh when we were, you know, in editing, we sat down and, sh and she said, 
this is your fifth book, Tony. Like, she knows that. She's edited all my books and things. Yes. Do you think that this kind of all-conquering, earth-shattering book is really in your in your wheelhouse? I'm <laughs> like, uh, maybe not. She's like, let's take those pieces out, shall we? <laughs> so let's – and then she does it so nicely. She goes, let's leave it up to the reader's imagination. So we can have every reader imagining what would be their earth shattering. It's like, oh, okay. <laughs> so I think it's – she's right, of course. It's far better to have – there would have been nothing worse for me to have built up the mythology around this book, put a couple of pages in and have readers go, well, that's not all that. You know, how, why are people getting so excited about that? So I think it was the right decision. That's good editing. <laughs> um, the, and I mean, around that, uh, where you've kind of got this book in your head, well, you've obviously written bits of it. So... There's only sort of hints about what the book is really about yeah. in there. But yeah. did you have a lot more about what it was actually about and, and how the impact it had? Because it, it does leave a lot to the imagination. Yeah, yeah. But what, what do you see that – what is that book in your head? What is that book about? Well, this is something that I do in a, a lot of my work. I'm really a big fan of the gaps because I've developed this idea over the years that it's – fiction is just – this is why I'm so obsessed with it, right? Because it's both of us. It's the reader and the writer. I didn't really understand this before I started writing a lot. And the thing that made me understand this was when I was on tour with my first book, Edition. And Edition, I don't know if any of you have read it, it's a romance um, about a woman who has obsessive compulsive disorder and this guy she meets called Seamus, right? And the Seamus character, the boyfriend character, I kind of, you know, I like them all. I like everybody. Um, and I was in South Australia at a library outside of Adelaide and I'd given the library talk and then there was a book, a signing queue and this, there was two women in the signing queue and one came up to me and she said, oh, you can tell that's a novel, she said, because men like Seamus don't exist in real life. And I thought, oh, that's so lovely. We chatted for a minute and I signed the book, blah, blah, blah. And then the next woman came up in the same queue and said, oh, I really loved all the characters except for that Seamus, what a controlling shithead, right? <laughs> and it, this really made me think about this idea about what the reader contributes to the book because I couldn't stop thinking about these two interactions. And then when I got back to the hotel room, I realised that neither of those women was were talking about my book. They were both telling me something about their lives in a, in a way that was just a roundabout way, something very intimate and personal about their lives. And... Um, Kind of projecting on right. onto the character. That's right. And it made me think that we all do that when we read fiction. So you go to the movies, right, and you're sitting there in your chair and you look at the screen, whatever, and, you know, whatever is happening, and you see exactly what the director wants you to see. You see what everyone looks like and what they sound like and what they say. It's, it's crystal clear to you. But when you're reading a novel, this all has to happen in your head. So you have to be the director of a film in your own head. And that means I can only go halfway, the, the writer can only go halfway, and the reader has to come the other half of the way. So that's why fiction is so magical, because no two books for two readers are exactly the same. Every, every reading experience is different. And it's actually a, a conversation between two people who will never probably meet, the reader and the writer, in this imaginative space. So that made me think about... Uh, that has really influenced the way I've written over the years about the gaps that I leave. And I know um, my readers are pretty much 
across the board smarter than me <laughs> and they work things out and they like working things out. They like going, they like the, the fact that there's something underneath that they can sort of puzzle out. And the people who don't like to puzzle things out give me one-star reviews on Goodreads <laughs> and they're not my people, you know. Um, but it, it's, just, it's just the way things work out. So I'm big on the, on the gaps in things. And which drives those kids, the school kids who are reading Nine Days, it drives them mental. So they get so stressed. they like, what happened to Jean? How did she die? And I'm like, how do you reckon she died? And they go, no, we want you to tell us. So they it kind of drives them crazy. It's hilarious. <laughs> did, th did those comments about Seamus also influence you've got two very distinct male characters in this yes who one is very much oh, I don't one, one's kind of it's he's really gross. easy to he's gross yeah one's I it's easy to go this guy's the bad guy and this guy's the good yeah. guy but uh, but did that does that kind of conversation like seep into how you frame characters then in that kind of situation well it, it the character that is not the good guy character. So Philip and Jamie? Yeah, that's yep. right. So Philip is my not good guy character. And this is the thing that has made most people upset about this book is that he's so he's quite bad and no one seems to mind. And people go, especially young women, they go, this book is just, this is just outrageous. And it's hard to, I mean, he, Philip was Hattie's university lecturer and they had an affair. This is the mid-80s, right? So it's hard for me to explain to young women that this happens all the time. And it was really not a cause for alarm. So it, it's um, I'm trying to capture a period. I mean, of course it was a terrible thing. Now we look back and go, I can't believe that it's was so a thing. Wrong, yeah. It's so wrong. But, but, it but Caddy doesn't even really have a problem no, with it at that because point. because it wasn't yeah. a problem. Like, it, it was just something that happened. So I'm very cautious of that kind of historical revisionism where you place modern values on people in earlier times. I don't want it that um i want people to be actually as they were back then i mean i never slept with any of my university lecturers but to be quite honest i probably would have been up for it um, <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> um i was too busy like chasing undergraduates and i would have had to dig a hole with a net in my front yard to actually catch anyone because no one wanted to have sex with me back when i was at university but anyway that's kind of beside the point of this talk this is a um, very revealing conversation <laughs> You are aware your husband's <laughs> in the back of the room, aren't you? Hi, darling. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, that, that's actually how things were. And I actually ran a past a, f a couple of people that I know who were tutors at university. Did this happen? They go, oh, yeah, it was just a thing. So, um, yeah, I'm cautious about not putting modern greats. Like, I'm not, I don't want those days to come back. But modern terrific values are like, oh, what was, you know, a long time ago those things again have passed not all the things that have passed are wistful nostalgic things we can feel um soft about some things are great that they've passed by speaking of characters i've always liked ask, asking this question of authors but um it's the question about how much of you is in is in the characters mm -hmm. now there's three really distinctive and in varying degrees strong female characters in this how much of you is in all three mm. of those? And, and how do you sort of, you know, differentiate to make them all feel so different? Thank you. Um, to me, it's all about the way they speak. The most important part of any novel to me is the dialogue. For some reason, that's the key for character to me. And the way people speak is so important because it, 
people don't, no one sits there. It's not like writing where you choose your words carefully. When you're speaking, things just come out. It's your unconscious mind at work. And the words that you choose and the way you phrase things, to me, says so much about who they are. And I can't, until I can hear somebody speak, I can't, I don't have no idea what the character is like. So I go for lots of walks and headphones on and mutter to myself when I'm walking. Once I have the cadence of a speech. You're that person walking yeah, down yeah, the street. Yeah, I am. Okay. <laughs> um, it, uh, once I have the cadence and their the word choices, I'm very clear about who they are, the sound of their voice. That's the really the key thing. And once I have that, then it, it's easy. But as to which parts of them are me, I think I'm parts of, of all. Yeah, I think every character is a tiny little flower. Do you feel that too? Mm. I mean, well, I mean, it's interesting that the, the three main characters in this, th- uh, they all have kind of similar qualities in, in some ways, that they're mm-hmm. all very strong and forthright and as much as uh, Caddy is probably maybe the weakest of them in some ways, yep. but she also yep. has her own strengths as well. Yep. Uh, so just, yeah, is that, uh, is that something you're kind of conscious of when you're building these characters? I think um, strength is an important thing for me now. Um, and and anger, I think the, the the power that comes from a little bit of righteous anger is a big thing. Um, when I was nearly fift- coming up to my 50th birthday, I took up kickboxing and boxing, and um, it was just funny because I'd never done anything athletic before, and I had to actually, I just had this overwhelming desire to start this, so I had to ring up the boxing gym and talk to this lovely man who trained me for a little while, and it very nice, very smart guy, but had that boxer's kind of mouthful of marbles kind of talking over the phone, you know. And uh, I said to him, you know, I want to come. And he's like, come, you know, book, we'll book you in, a couple of lessons and then join the classes and blah, blah, blah. And I said, look, I've never done anything like this before and I'm 50. And he said, lady, he said, um, if menopause or women, women stopped wanting to hit things, I'd be out of business. <laughs> <laughs> and I kind of thought, oh, there's a lot of that, you know, there's a lot of that. I'm not going to take any more kind of kind of arrangement going on, and I can feel that in the work, don't you think? It's like not not going to take that anymore. Um, so I, th- <laughs> I think there's part of that, you know, things like that happening. Uh, uh, there's a lot of points in the book where I was expecting either of those three female characters to punch someone, so that's <laughs> totally understandable. It's making sense. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is maybe a bit more of a specific question, but um, there's a bit towards the end where uh, Inga Carlson, the, the acclaimed author in this book, is working on her second book. She's approaching deadline and she's, uh, I don't, she doesn't leave the house. She doesn't really see or see anyone. She doesn't eat. She works in 20-hour stretches. And I just wanted to ask, are you okay? Is that <laughs> is I do put in is long that how stretches. You, is that what you do? No, I do. I do put in long stretches. I'm very strict with my unconscious mind. Like I'm very, like if I tell my, this is what happens at the beginning. I I think training, I'm very fond, my dog passed away last year, which was a source of great grief, but I'm very fond of dogs and I'm very fond of well-trained dogs. And I kind of think my unconscious mind is like a a dog that I hope will be well-trained. So I have this thing where I have word counts every day, right? I I don't work every day. I feel that I'm no good at that. Every second day I work, pretty much. And um, other days I do other things like, you know, interviews and, you know, kickboxing. write things and kickboxing, yes. Um, but 
at the beginning of the project, it's hard to get into it. It's hard to sit down. You just see the flashing cursor and you think, oh my God, what am I going to achieve today? So I, I give myself words. So by the time the project is underway, I should be doing like 1,250 words a day. Like that's my thinking. That's what I should be doing. And the first time I set that kind of a word count for myself, I go, right, 1,250 words today. And my unconscious goes, right, no problem. But we've got all day, so let's just see what's on Twitter first. Right? <laughs> and I go, oh, okay. So we do that. And then I go, okay, so let's get back to it because 1,250, right, that's our target for the day. We are doing this today. And my unconscious goes, completely agree, so happy with this plan, but we'd really do much better with a coffee. Okay. And this goes on, right, through the day. And at the end of the day, it's like 6 o'clock and I've done like 400 words. And my unconscious goes, well, that was a great day. Like 400 is better than nothing. And, you know, that's fantastic. Let's, let's go and have dinner. And then I have to go, but we said 12.50. And my unconscious goes, but it's 6 o'clock. And I go, I don't care, right? So then I sit there, like 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock, 11 o'clock, 1 o'clock like whatever, to get that 12.50 and then I only go to bed when the 12.50 is done. And I tell you what, the next morning when you sit down and you say, right, 12.50 words today, your, my unconscious goes, right, let's get into it. Because it does not want to be sitting there any more than I do. <laughs> so once you just, you just be consistent and firm, like, and, and just, and they've come to the party. Like You're training a puppy. It's just like training a puppy. Like, you know, it's, you don't be mean to them. You just say, no, this is my the behaviour I expect and they will come. And I think that that gives you um, – Norman Mailer talks about this in his um, book on writing, about if you if your, y your unconscious can trust you, it will bring better ideas because it knows you're not going to waste them. And I, I, I can really relate to that, this idea of being a trustworthy person who, who lives up to even the smallest little promises that I make myself and that is what keeps my unconscious kind of ticking along. I very rarely have a day where I can't write anything. So I used to write, like, it's completely still amazing to me that I do this job because I'm a molecular biologist by training. So um, I used to write these enormous, like, new chemical entity reports for drug companies. And the idea that I would go to work and go, I'm just not feeling the vibe today, it's just... <laughs> you know, I mean, people don't get plumbers block or you know, electricians block. Plumbers you know? deal with blocks. That's the <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> that's right. Plumbers block is the the job that they're there for. But like writers block is it li like it's acceptable to have these days when you don't do anything. I don't think that's right. I think you just lose confidence in yourself. I've, I've got to ask, how did you go from being a molecular <laughs> biologist to becoming a, an author? It's super weird. Um, Glad I asked. Then. <laughs> It's, it sounds ridiculous, but um, I had this job that I did not like. Like, I didn't, you know those jobs, those, you get four o'clock on a Sunday afternoon, you get that feeling in your stomach, like, oh my God, I've got to go in tomorrow. You know that four o'clock on a Sunday afternoon thing? Um, and I had this for this job because they were just kind of dicks, really. And I, I, the work was fine, but I just didn't like being in there. And anyway, I said to Robbie, Robbie, um, I really am over this. And he said, well, if you went back, and got a qualification in professional writing, like just a TAFE certificate, you could um, start your own business because I'd been, I, I'd worked in labs for a lot, a long time and I knew a lot of people in, in biotech and in pharmaceutical companies. You could 
uh, set up like a contract technical writing business at home and do these jobs on contract instead of being an employee. You could work for yourself. So immediately he says that I'm thinking, A, pyjamas, B, dog, both of which have been the goals of my life. So I, I went back and enrolled in this, you know, TAFE course on professional writing, which had a lot of very serious subjects, technical writing, editing, non-fiction, kind of the ones that I was there to do. And then it had this completely different stream of like poetry and playwriting and all this kind of very soft and squishy stuff that I'd never had anything slightly to do with. I would have told people I was the least creative person you could ever meet in your life before this. And then again, Robbie said, you're so obsessed with reading fiction. Your favourite thing in the world is to read novels. Why don't you pick one of these creative subjects, just one in, in, in the mix for the fun of it? I picked novel writing. I started. It was, it's like a drug. Um, and my first novel edition was my first year assignment for that subject that I wasn't able to stop working on. But I worked on when I finished the course, when I was doing that, se when, when I was doing contract work for pharmaceutical companies. I, s I just kept working on it until it was finished and then I sold it and uh, into uh, 17 countries, 16 languages and they're finishing the final draft of the film script for casting later this year. Awesome. I think we did the same thing. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. <laughs> thank you. It's so amazing to me. It's still quite amazing to me. I think we did the same TAFE course, and I feel like I've wasted my life now. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I run into people who I used to know beforehand because I, I worked in labs for a long time. If anyone has any questions about restriction enzymes, which are made by bacteria, I'm also the person for that. Do we have any questions <laughs> about that now? Any, Just raise any your restriction hand. enzyme no, questions? No, say <laughs> strangely no. <laughs> Sometimes I run into people that I used to work in labs with. I'm like, oh, it's so weird that you've got the same name as that writer. This is a really minor thing, but how did you come up with uh, doing the 1250 words a day? That's a very specific number. <laughs> why, that wow. why, why that number? Because it's... Um, it's a seven-hour workday, and then it's an hour for, like, um, reading something, and an hour for emergencies, and then five hours of 250 words an hour. I thought that was very straightforward. You are such a scientist. <laughs> <laughs> there's science in almost all my books. This is there's only really two books without any science in them. The f my first, second, and fourth books. That's are three. Oh, no, wait, they're three with. Oh, sorry. Yeah, with. <laughs> okay, they sorry. have science in them. This and one fact, doesn't have science. This one doesn't have science. <laughs> and in fact, my fourth book, the book before this, which is a bedroom farce, like a, an old-fashioned crazy people with their pants, with their underwear <laughs> locked in the wrong people's cupboards, hiding, you know, behind doors. Um, I gave the main character in that a job I used to do, which was um, stock culture collection librarian, which means the person responsible for keeping all the bacteria alive, like the gardener for bacteria. So I, was, I would spend all day in this tiny little space, like much smaller than this, and the walls are covered with what looks like pie warmer tray, but inside they're all different bacteria, and it's my job to like keep them all alive, make their food and sub them out when they get too crowded. And like that was my job for like three years. <laughs> That's awesome. It's so weird, isn't it? So random. <laughs> I will throw it open to the floor for all your science-related questions and, <laughs> and questions about your books. But um, just one last one before we do that is you've got five books 
uh, now. And along the way, all of them have either been like long-listed or short-listed for something, or they've won awards for things, which is just amazing. And wh- what did what do those things actually mean for you? What do, th- do they what do they change, or what doors do they open when you get long-listed, short-listed within things? Because you've got a whole a long list of them. So thank you. Yeah, it, it's actually, I think the you know the groovy the cool answer would be to say oh they don't make any difference at all but the nerd answer is they really do i love it getting long listed so much because it, it's usually your peers on the on the judging committee and i've done a lot of judging myself now it's i've been chair of the victorian premier's prize for fiction um and uh, i've judged that prize twice and non-fiction once and i know the effort that go it goes into and so i just feel that people who know books think I'm doing a good job. So it does, it really means a lot to me. And does it change, do do you feel like people become more aware of your work through these things in in some ways? I think they do. I think the first time I was long-listed for the Miles Franklin, which is Australia's sort of most important literary prize, um, I think that made an enormous difference to the way my work is considered because I try and, always I try and, walk this line I try and do the best job I can possibly do in terms of writing but I also want to write something that I would want to read and that I think people would want to read and I don't like either end of that extreme I don't like I read a lot of genre fiction I read a lot of romance and a lot of crime and a lot of I I read some fantasy and there's an end where it's they don't seem to care about sentences there's lots of books that do care a lot about sentences but there's a part that doesn't and I, I don't like those. And at the, the other end, the very far literary end, with th- which is a book full of gorgeous sentences when nothing happens and everyone is just dealing with their middle-class, middle-aged ennui, and uh, they drift around going, huh? Like, I d- I'm not really interested in that either. So I'm, I'm trying to write something for people who like to read a story, but in a way, in a way that's as, m- as beautiful as I can make it. So I think that the long listings are really important because they, they're telling me that 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 balance is okay, the, the books are beautiful enough, and then if readers like them, then they're readable enough, so it tells me that I'm in that right middle space that, that I want to do. Uh, this book definitely lands in the middle of that space because it has that mystery element, but you also sort of crime, and there's this slight romantic element as well, so I think you've done a really great job with Thank it. You. So. Um, do we have any questions? Raise your hand if you... If anything you would like to know. Anything you would like to know that we haven't... About bacteria. Or <laughs> how to keep particular types of bacteria alive. Paul? Oh, uh, well. And just for the people who are listening to this in podcast form, I'm going to be repeating the question so either you at home can hear it while you're driving in your car or walking down the street muttering <laughs> to yourself. Uh, the question is, what's next? So I haven't started a new book yet because I'm just in the final 10 weeks, hopefully, of my PhD, which is the finest thing I've ever done. So it's called, can I just tell you about my PhD? Like normally please, this is really boring. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, um, my topic is romantic comedy through time and form. So what that means is I'm comparing three writers of romantic comedy in different forms and different times. So I'm looking at Moliere, the French playwright from the 17th century, Jane Austen and Nora Ephron, the American screenwriter who wrote When Harry Met Sally and Sleepless, Sleepless in Seattle. Seattle. Yep. So I'm writing... I'm comparing and contrasting those three, the techniques that they use on the line as well as structurally. But why I'm enjoying it so much is 
I'm writing it in the form. So the first third is written in, in rhyming couplets like a Moliere play and the middle bit is written like an F1 story and the third bit, uh, uh, like an Austen story and the third bit is written like an F1 screenplay but I still have to put the references in, like 300 references built into the thing and it's just amusing me no end and I'm probably going to fail my PhD because <laughs> people are going to go, this is just too weird but I'm having an absolute ball. So uh, what have you learnt from that, from the three different time periods? Well, what, what are you, what's coming out of it? Okay, so my conclusions are, I definitely think Moliere wrote romantic comedy. I would categorise him as a rom-com writer and that's not the general critical view of his work and I think that's because he was such a genius and male that his work was contorted out of the definition of the genre because people back when a lot of Moliere criticism was at its peak, which was in the 20th century, they couldn't really cope with A, a genius, or B, a male, writing rom-coms. So I think his work was contorted out of that label. The more I read, read Jane Austen, I read all the novels again and so much scholarship. The world of Austen scholarship is a world you could just do nothing on. I don't think she was romantic at all. I think she was a... Um, a writer, a very rational writer, who was writing at the at the end of that um, uh, very rational period of human history, and the the romantics picked up her work and put a romantic thing over the top of them. Um, I don't think she was even slightly romantic. I think she was absolutely cutting. She, I, I mean, I love her. Don't get me wrong. The work is amazing, but she just didn't really like people that much. When you read her letters, you get more of a sense of this incredibly sharp woman. Like my, one of the, the, the Austen letters that meant the most to me was um, they she wrote letters all the time because they couldn't just phone somebody. And her sister, Cassandra, was away for, for a short visit. They used to do a lot of visits. And she wrote her one letter to kind of fill her in on the, what was happening in the village. And she said, oh, yes, Mrs. Smith or whatever, I can't remember her name, um, one of the village women um, uh, was brought to bed early and delivered of a dead baby before her time. Um, the doctor said she must have had a shock. Um, perhaps she caught upon the face of her husband unawares. <laughs> I mean, honestly. Savage. Like, <laughs> savage. Like, this streak that runs through her, like, she was take no prisoners and you just, she was like 22 when she wrote this and you just go, oh my God, Jane, you know, can we tone it down just a, like, she really, and if you read the beginning of Work Like Sense and Sensibility, the way, um, the, the way that novel begins, she was take no prisoners and the other thing that, that meant, made me see her as so unsentimental is that hardly any time the villains get get punished. You read Dickens, which is not that very much later, like 60 or 80 years later, and he has this built-in morality in his world where the villains get their just yeah. deserts yeah, and yeah. The, the heroes get like a bizarre inheritance or something. And she had no sense of justice, like the baddies just got away with it. Like she was really ruthless. And I think that the the way that we've romanticized her work in its in the in the movies and in the and everyone you know Colin Firth and all that has has kind of taken the emphasis away from the what's actually on the page and Efron well it's really weird because she was just a 
a, a ball of inconsistencies. So she was a very strong feminist who was obsessed with the way she looked and hated anyone who was prettier than her. And um, you see this in all her work. Her two, um, one of her essay collections, which is called "I Feel Bad About My Neck," <laughs> is that. But it's it's not just in that; it's everywhere. And her most famous essay, "A Few Words About Breasts," about where she re retails her um, when she first said to her mother, um, "I think I, when she was about twelve or something, I think I need to go shopping. I'd like to get a bra." And her mother said to her, "Why don't you just use a band-aid?" And these things, like she's in her 60s retelling this story, like she just never got over it. Everything's about the way people look. And it's a, she, she lived in a very uncomfortable space, I think. She was very Jewish, culturally Jewish, but she only ever had Meg Ryan and Meryl Streep and uh, like she never had that reflected. Um, it, it, she's a very complex and conflicted person. So I feel like I've learned a lot about all three of them, all fascinating and genius people. I so want to read this PhD. <laughs> <laughs> uh, any other questions? That was a very long answer. Sorry about that. Yes, Maya. That question was about the, the work you do as, as a mentor, helping people and uh, giving an insight into that uh, closed room of, of writers. Thank you. That's lovely. Yeah, I think it's really important. It's something I spend a lot of time on. The days where I'm not writing, I often do mentoring. Um, I've also judged the Victorian Poems Prize for unpublished manuscripts. Um, I, I just think that um, if there's one thing that is problematic about Australian fiction is fantastic we punch well above our weight on a world scale but it's still a kind of middle class pursuit and um, I think uh, uh, culturally diverse voices are still rare and working class voices are still rare and and coming from a very working class family like it was entirely a fluke that I ended up um, in university and a scientist it was because I couldn't get a job I I applied for a job um, in the mailroom at the physiology department of the University of Queensland. And after I worked there for 18 months, somebody said to me, you know, if you enrol enrolled part-time, we would give you time off during the day to go to classes and you could study at night. And um, that's how I did my science degree, seven years part-time. And um, I, I think that uh, it's it should be... I'm obsessed with writing fiction. I think everyone should be writing fiction. Publication is a separate thing. We don't even want to talk about that, but I know there are many artists here, especially in this town. Writing is the most democratic of the art forms because you don't need a canvas or clay or glass or, or anything. You can do it with a pen and paper. You can do it in a tea cafe. You can come here and buy a book and lend it to all your friends, or you can buy a second-hand book. And it's it, it's something that you know all the great religions of the world have always have always known that if you spend quiet time in contemplation, making something beautiful yourself, 
the world becomes a better place. You become a more thoughtful and, and clearer person. And when you work on ideas and sentences, you find your thoughts correspondingly become clearer and, and more... Um, uh, you understand more about what you're trying to say. And the whole point of writing fiction and creating people who are not you is your is an exercise in empathy and reading fiction is an exercise in empathy and it enables you to experience what life would be like for someone who is not you and that's a, a unique and rare thing and I and people frequently when I say this say I don't have time to write fiction it's just the thing I most often hear and my standard reply to that is if you write 500 words a day you would have a first draft in five months and most people spend more time watching my kitchen rules. Um, so it's just about where you put that time. And even if you've met, if I didn't get another book published from today, I would still not stop. It, it adds something immeasurably important to your life, the pursuit of something creative and something beautiful um, that I want everybody to do. I feel like I'm evangelical about it. So helping people clarify those ideas and understanding what's going on in their manuscript is, is really an important thing. So, whereabouts do you do this mentoring? How does where how does it actually work? Who are, who um, are you involved with? Well, I, I work with a, a company in Sydney, but I also do sort of things on the side for people who need a bit of a hand. So it's a m mix of an informal mentoring with friends, um, but uh, spending time. Like I'm a I'm one of the ambassadors this year for the Emerging Writers Festival, which is in Melbourne in June, um, and I. Do a, a fair bit of teaching, and I also I still do workshops in libraries because it's accessible for more people um, and free. So I, I try wherever I can to to think about how to encourage people to start putting their ideas down. Any other questions? More questions? Yes, Joe, up the back. Yeah, so... Uh, so, so the question is about uh, Caddy or Cadence in, in the book, where her name came from. So Caddy is a important and classic name in Australian literature from the book Caddy, um, which was one of the very first Australian novels that I ever read. And I think it, it does... I, I did want to continue that kind of the lineage. Um, Australian fiction is a really important thing um, and reading our own stories is a really important part of understanding who we are as a people. So, yeah, I wanted to continue the, the lineage of that name. And in, in the book, she's named after a character in All Has an End as well, so yeah. it's kind of continuing That's right, that's that right. So well. she was named after the character in a book, but not the character in the book that's yeah. in that book. <laughs> Other is about how do you work with an editor? Um, I've had the same editor for my books and um, I like her a lot but she's a bit scary. She, I don't think she's a podcast host and she won't hear this but she's made me cry in the past. Um, thanks for coming. Bye. <laughs> 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 
Thank you. Uh, um, she she's very honest, and that means a lot to me. So if something's not working, she'll just go like you heard me say before about the pieces. Like no, this is not, and that is really an important thing for me. I'm not a huge drafter because I I like I make it up as I go the first time. I I don't know what I'm doing, and then once I figure out what I'm doing, then I write it again, and then I then I give it to her mostly. So it's maybe three drafts is is really all I do, which is not many. A lot of people do a lot more. But, um, yeah, I, I'm just not an overdrafter. But she's she likes – she's weird in a couple of respects. She likes to work with pen and paper. Like she actually marks up a manuscript and then creates it for me, which people don't do anymore. It's a lot of on-screen editing. But she really – she feels like the, the words on – the pencil marks on paper is important. Um, and she's very good with uh, – she is – one of my weaknesses, one of my many writing weaknesses, is if I think I can make a joke, I'll put it in. Even if it doesn't really suit the story and doesn't suit the character, I'm like, if it's funny, it's earned its place already. And she's like, really, you think that character would make that joke? And I'm like, but it's funny. doesn't matter. Like, it comes out. She's much more disciplined about things like that. But we disagree about adverbs, whereas I loathe adverbs. I just there's adverbs are just the worst part. Don't you agree? Like they're the worst parts of speech. I don't know why verbs hang out with them because verbs are so cool and adverbs are so. Painful. I disagree completely. But go on. <laughs> <laughs> but she has a much more lenient adverb policy than I do. So I will say, she will say, "How about an adverb in here?" And I'm like, <laughs> "Over my dead body." <laughs> so you know, we kind of disagree about things like that. So um, she will do a structural edit first. Look at big picture things things about the plot that aren't working or characters that aren't working and then she will do kind of line work second if she sees something that jumps out at her while she's doing the bigger picture stuff she will certainly tell me but mostly we work from a big picture to a small and out out to inner tension with, with, with so few drafts and you said the first one you don't really know what you're doing is is the first one very much for you like what i've heard called a vomit draft you just kind of you get it yeah, out and then very much and then deal with it after yeah, that. Yeah. So I frequently have this ongoing argument with my friend Graham Simpson, whose book is right there, the yellow one. Um, because is the rosy result? Yes, I think, yes. One, all of the rosies. So we have this ongoing debate where he is what's called a plotter. So he works out the plot in advance on a big spreadsheet and he spends months working out what happens in each scene and on each page. And I am what's called a pantser, which means we do things by the seat of our pants. So I will just invent the, the first draft. And he says to me, you wouldn't have those two dead manuscripts in your bottom drawer if you had planned it more carefully because you would know what was going to work, and um, which is probably true. But um, I feel like I can, I can surprise myself with things if I don't plan, if I don't plan it. Is that part of the thing of you can feel your character's going to do something but you only know it when they're about to do yeah, it or they're going right. to say something. I love that feeling. Yeah. When they kind of surprise you, you go, oh, of course, this is what they do here. It's great. Yeah. Uh, another question. Is there any more? No? Oh, oh yes, there we go. Oh, that's a great so question. So given that you read two novels a week not and not asking what your favourite author is, which one challenges you the most? Uh, the most challenging book I've read this year is um, Carrie Tiffany's Exploded View. I don't know if you've seen that. That's really 
incredible, I, you know, to be a musician is to play everything. Um, I found it really challenging. Um, the voice is incredibly internal and claustrophobic and very rewarding and challenging book. Um, at the moment, I'm reading Tolstoy's Resurrection, which I haven't... Has anyone read Resurrection? What, I didn't, what did you think? How, it, it took you ages? ages. Not, oh, for not for ages, but... Yeah. Did, did you enjoy it? Or yeah, you did enjoy it, okay. I, I have a love-hate relationship with Tolstoy because I love Vanity Ringham, of course. Um, and War and Peace just shits me to tears. <laughs> like, is it war or is it peace? Like, make up your mind. Um, so, so I'm really. I've only just begun. So I'm gonna. I'm very interested. So I'm, it's a mix. I read a mix of old and new. All time, I like Zadie Smith. Zadie Smith, I think, is just beyond brilliant. Um, do, do you have a? Th- do you give up on books? Like, or will you always go oh to the no, end? Oh no, I always go to the end. Because oh, I'm an oh. optimist, I, w- I want the best. I want that writer to pull it out at the last minute. You know, this c- the books like the fragments, literary mysteries, are they're important books to me. I think because the well, the, the most important of all the literary mysteries is A.S. Byatt's Possession. Do you know? Oh, <laughs> isn't oh, it? Oh, you picked it up because it sounds like A.S. Byatt's Possession. I love. Wow, there you go. Uh, that's just the most amazing. That's the ultimate yeah. compliment, I think. To you. It <laughs> is. It's the ultimate compliment. But that's kind of the gold star for this kind of literary mystery. But there's other things like um, uh, Elizabeth Costova's The Historian and Carlos Ruiz Zafon's the, the Shadow of the Wind. Those kind of historical unpicking of, of old stories kind of thing. Um, so all, all those books are important to me. Any other final questions? Don't be shy. No? Okay. Take that as the end. <laughs> uh, thank you, everyone, for coming along and uh, and for your insightful questions and for being a very attentive audience. Uh, for those of you listening to this as a podcast, thank you for listening and making it this far. And most of all, thank you, Tony Jordan. Thank you for coming along and thank you for the fragments. Yeah, thank you, thank you, thank you, everybody.